G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks podcast, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined, as always, by my lovely co-host, Ardeet. Unfortunately, Panda Bear won't be joining us this week and possibly for the next few weeks. He has some work commitments and that takes precedent. So... He will be joining us eventually another day, and when he does, we will um, very much be looking forward to his return. Today is Tuesday, the 20th of June, and our topics this week are, does Australia need a national strategy to fix the housing crisis? Then we're going to briefly walk into the quagmire that is high-speed rail here in Australia. (laughs) Then, of course, we'll jump into this week in Australian history with Adit, and then we'll finish off, as always, with a Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, how are you today? I'm travelling well, DK. I had a a reasonably good week, and today I donated plasma for the first time. I'd um look. I hadn't. I haven't done any blood donations since well last century, probably yeah, thirty five years ago, something like that. Maybe it was even a a bit longer. And my brother in law, he's a he's a regular donator. He's in fact, he's one of the one of the uh the the record holders. And I'd seen the story on that, and I realised that uh, you know, some of the rules had had changed, and some of the things that they they checked check for that uh used to exclude you in the the past now they just look for it and uh if it's not there that's fine they rule it out and i thought okay well that's that's good i'll i'll head in there and uh yeah it was all it was all pretty straightforward yeah yeah the sort of questionnaires have you done this that if you eaten eat uh yeah taken this and, and that and uh medical as and things but then it's just sit back in the chair, get the the needle in. They got this. Yeah, it was interesting to see the ma- machine that's you know, automatically taking your blood out, gets the plasma, puts the platelets back in. Uh, the people in there were super chirpy and super friendly. <laughs> the uh, the nurse who was uh, was doing it, uh, she she was excited because she'd seen the vein in my right arm was looking particularly good. She said, oh, that's great. She said, that's such a good way to start the morning rather than having some vein that's hard to find. And she uh, pointed out to one of her mates who was coming along. She said, oh, look at this. You can see that vein from over there. And the uh, other nurse said, oh, well, look, it said to me, oh, I hope you're, hope you're okay. Um, this and use the the nurse's name. She said, "You know, she's a, she's a newbie. This is her her first time." And I sort of knew she was joking, but then when my <laughs> when my nurse looked at her and she said, "This is this guy's first time," you could just see a face drain. She said, "Oh no, I didn't." But I was, la- I was laughing by that time. So yeah, well, look, it was it was a, it was an interesting experience. So I booked it booked in again for for next month. We'll see how that uh, see how that goes, but. Yeah, it was something I've had on the list for a long time to to do. So yeah, no, been cool. up to a few other things, but yeah, that was good to do. No, that's cool. I um, I'm a blood donor. I uh, yep. frequently, uh, I sort of give I give whole blood, and so not plasma. Yep. Uh, and you can only donate that once every three months. Um, 
and I think I'm up to 30 donations. Wow. Um, so I've been doing it for a while. It does take quite a long time to get those numbers up there. Um, but I've been doing it uh, ever since I was sort of in high school. I remember they came around and did it, and I thought, oh, yeah, get, get you know, a, a, the afternoon off. Why not? Huh. So I went up with a with a bunch of other with a bunch of other uh, you know we're we're sort of like in the last year of high school. Yep. Went up to the blood donation uh, place and uh, did the deed. I'm not afraid of needles, so it was never. No, neither neither yeah. am I. I. I'm quite happy to watch them go in. Yeah, no, I sit there and and uh, you know actually watch it and tell them if they did a good job and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yep, yep. And I, I, it, I know what you mean. You're right. It, it is. A, it's a really great atmosphere. I, I, I've donated blood in Queensland, Victoria, and New South Wales. So I've done a, a little bit all over the place as I've sort of moved around. And I can tell you, they're all very much the same. So if you're listening and you're thinking, or you're even if you're a bit afraid, you know, oh, it's. I think a lot of people. It's one of those things where they they know they should do it. They've talked about it. They know someone that does it, but you know they've never really. Um, actually, you know, pulled the trigger and gone and done it. It's definitely one of those things that once you've done it once and you realize how how much of a non-event it really is, um, you'll go back and you'll do it. Um, I I should also say for our international listeners, because there are some parts of the world that do pay you to donate blood. Oh, yeah, that's um, right, a small amount of money in Australia. It's, it's not, uh, you don't get paid for it. It is completely voluntary. Um, they do give you like some food afterwards. Um, and sometimes they do have like, uh, they recently had where if you donate so many times in a certain period of time, they'll give you, you know, like a tote bag or I think I got, I got some socks. Um, so there's always like little things like that to try and get people to sort of come back. Um, but for me, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to go back anyway. Um, they used to have these, uh, chocolate biscuits that were like sealed in a, in a packet. Um, and they were really good. <laughs> I'd always take a few for morning tea, you know, for over the next week. Um, and I was very, very upset once they got rid of those. Um, and I keep asking, this was years ago now, I keep asking them when they're going to bring them back. But I, I think at this point, you know, it's not going to happen. But it's definitely something, yeah, you, something you should definitely do. Um, you'll be surprised they're not as fussy as a lot of people, th- I think, think that they are. So. Look, that's a, look. That I, I mean, look. The, the bottom, the bottom line for for me is when I was younger and I had diff, I had different habits that basically excluded me from uh, f- from giving. Uh, so it was something that I was aware that they were. Well, it's not that they're loosening it up; it's that they understand that. Uh, you know, people people have different. Like, yeah, for example, there used to be restrictions on, um, you know, if you had tattoos of that for, an, and there still is for for a certain period of time, but it was a longer period of time. And there are other things that if you had, you know, used particular substances in a particular way when you were younger, essentially you were excluded for life. But all those uh, all those sort of things have have changed over the years, and they've worked out that. Well, listen. If we test them on the other end, we can give that person a tick, and from that person, from that point on, uh, yeah, we've got a potential customer. So that was, you know, that was was part of, uh, 
you know, would help me as well. Plus the fact that you know it would, it'd been on so long, and I'd seen a, a story on the um, seen the story on the the news and knew someone who was in, involved with that. And I thought, ah, oh, got to get off my bum and actually do something about it. And look, if you're considering doing it, if you've, if you've ever had blood taken, you know, just for a, you know, pathology uh, or you know just a regular blood test. That's how complicated it is. Except you get to sit back in a, a comfy chair for you know f- fifteen or, or, or thirty five minutes, depending on what sort of one you you're giving in you know a, a relaxed environment with friendly people, and you get to sit down afterwards and have a little bit of snack, can have a read or go through your phone while you're doing it. It was surprisingly relaxing. So yeah, yeah. Get a sausage Look, roll you once you finish. Yeah. If you don't, yeah. if you don't like it, fair enough. But I mean, if you go once and it's not your thing, at least you've ticked it off the list and know it. Exactly. Um, and the, I should say the the chairs they have are very comfortable. I know. I know. <laughs> I was very, I was very relaxed. Um, I always jokingly say every time I go in, I jokingly say, "Ah, oh, I've got to get me one of these chairs," and they all laugh. But it's—I swear, you know—they hear it ten times every day. Um, they're very, they're very nice. I imagine they're probably very expensive chairs. Um, but you're yeah, right. If you've blood. if you've ever had a blood test or something like that, you know that's as bad as it gets. And honestly, like if you one thing. One thing I got told when I was in the Navy, actually, because they they give you all your immunizations again, uh, unless you can 100% prove that you've had them, which most people can't. So they just give you them all again within the space of about three days. Um, They told me, just relax. If you can relax your arm and the muscle was relaxed, when the needle goes in, it doesn't hurt nearly as much. Like you barely feel it. If you're all tensed up and waiting for it and you flinch and all that, it makes it a, a horrendously painful. It's a horrible experience. And of course you'll go, Oh, I don't want to do that again. But if you completely relax, you'll That's barely even feel it feel it happen. So um if you have to get a vaccination or something, yeah, if if they're going especially if they're going into the muscle, um obviously slightly different if you if you're drawing blood, but if you sure. do have a, a vaccine into the muscle just completely relax your arm. I know they, they tell you that, but it I absolutely can hand on my heart say it makes a huge difference. Just oh, no, relax. Nothing relaxes you more than someone looking at you saying, relax. Exactly, <laughs> exactly holding a needle. I'm yeah. going to stick this in you. Just relax. <laughs> we used to, um, when I was young, we used to have the uh, – the doctor and he would, this was this is when we were in uh I was when I was living in in June and the the doctor doctor Potts and when he would give them needle he would hold it like a dart and he'd make eye contact with you and he'd just have this thing and just like bang and put it in and the build up always just had me slightly tense and Look, I'm I'm fine with needles and all that, but I that's always stuck in my that's always stuck in my head. This vision of him lining lining it up and ready to go it wasn't good for a little kid. Oh, you got to have some fun at work, I guess. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, speaking of things that need to relax, does Australia need a strategy to fix decades of poor housing policies? Yes, some researchers say. They've released a report titled Towards an Australian Housing and Homelessness Strategy, 
understanding national approaches in contemporary policy. Another title that just rolls off the tongue. They argue that Australia's incoherent and fragmented housing policies have become so unworkable that a circuit breaker is needed. They've said that in the years after World War II, widespread home ownership in Australia was regarded as a means for having a stable housing during one's working life and in low-income retirement. And it was encouraged by an array of preferential policies by the government. Those housing policies included exemption from income tax on uh, imputed rents, land tax and aged pension assets tests, concessional sales of public housing, war service home loans, building society subsidies, first home buyers grants and rent controls that repressed competition from landlords. So there was a lot of incentives for purchasing and owning your own home. But they say in recent decades, housing has taken on additional financial features that have changed the landscape for younger generations and low-income households. Housing is now seen as an asset for leveraging into consumption as an investment, especially additional housing assets, which is a fancy way of saying rental properties, and financial assistance to children, especially in accessing home ownership themselves. They say that over time, many of those supportive post-war policies were dropped, such as public housing sales and rent controls, while new policies were added, such as exemption from capital gains tax and finance liberalization. And in the modern array of preferential treatment for housing, no longer supports home ownership as much as existing homeowners. And I think, you know, this is a very long-winded and fancy way of saying there's a housing crisis. We all know this. We all see this. So what is the solution? The researchers have said that Australia needs a national housing and homelessness strategy with big ambition. They say that the strategy should be enshrined in new legislation. They, they're calling it the Australian Housing and Homelessness Strategy Act that places the obligation on the housing minister to make a national strategy and stick to it. They say that the housing finance, sorry, they say the National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation or Housing Australia, as the Albanese government proposes to rebrand it, should become the lead agency that drives the housing strategy over the coming years. They say that the new act could create two new statutory offices to advise and keep the government to account on the conduct of the strategy and the pursuit of its mission. They say that the two offices could be called the Australian National Housing Consumer Council, representing the interests of home buyers, tenants, and the homeless, and the Australian National Housing Advocate with the power to inquire independently into the conduct of the strategy. The researchers say the mission of the national strategy should be very clear. Everyone in Australia must have adequate housing. They say that the private rental sector now houses 26% of Australian households and has been growing at the expense of both home owners and social housing since the 1980s. 
for growing numbers of Australian, privately renting has become a long-term or even perpetual prospect, they say. The private rental sector is also the site of the worst affordability outcomes in the Australian housing system. The medium low-income private renter household spent 36% of their income on rent in 2019 and 2020, with some 20% of this cohort spending over half their income on rent. I personally know a number of people that spend about half, if not more than half of their income on rent. And I feel like this is becoming more common than not, if I'm honest. Moreover, as a source of low-cost accommodation, this sector has become increasingly deficient with the national deficit on private tenancies, affordable to low-income private rentals growing from 48000 to 212000 in the last two decades to 2016. They say private rental dwellings are largely owned by other households with more than half owned by landlords who own a single dwelling. But properties and owners churn in and out of the sector rapidly, making housing in private rental sector structurally insecure. And I think anyone that's rented privately for any amount of time would completely agree with that. The The fact that, you know, rental agreements generally only go for six months, maybe 12, generally speaking, at the longer end. Yeah. Um, how many times have, you know, just just think, you know, of people that you know or maybe you're one of these people yourself where suddenly your house is being put up for sale or your house is they're taking it off the market because of they've got other plans for it and things like this. This is a very common sort of situation. Uh the researchers say that Australia's supply of social housing needs to be dramatically increased. They say in its post-war heyday, public housing, the only social housing form at the time, was funded by the Commonwealth State Housing Agreements to be a significant force in the planning and construction of Australian cities and towns and ancillary to both industrial development and to home ownership. In the quarter century to 1970, public housing authorities built just under to 250,000 dwellings, mainly for low-income working families and the aged, and they'd sold 100,000 of them on favourable terms. Yeah, that this was an is, interesting. That was an interesting little stat that uh, sold that many on favourable terms. I mean, I don't want to super interrupt your flow, but that's sort of. I, I didn't realise that they were selling that many. Hmm. Almost half. It, it, it's something that also happened a lot in the UK with public housing. And, and sometimes, you know, when I say favorable terms, they were, depending on um, how long you'd been there and things like that and how much money you'd have, they basically work with you so that you could purchase this property from the Commonwealth government based on, even sometimes it was, if you could get up so much money, they would, you know, provide you with a low interest loan that wasn't much more than your rent and you'd pay it off and things like that. So they were very flexible with how they would allow people to purchase these um, these Commonwealth owned houses. So the funding for Commonwealth state housing agreements was dr drastically reduced by the Howard government in the mid-1990s, and the funding was largely continued at its starvation ration levels since then. 
The sector's income from rents is also increasingly constrained. They say social housing landlords charge income-related rents and after increasing the proportion of income charged over the 90s and 2000s, the low incomes of their target cohort, which is 98% of whom are in the lowest 10% of income earners, are completely tapped out at this point. They say Australia's social rental sector, public housing, community housing, and indigenous controlled housing now houses just 4% of all households, down dramatically from 6% in the mid-90s. The researchers say that 120,000 Australians were homeless on the night of the 2021 census, and that is a growing problem. The researchers say that for many of the homeless, homelessness was triggered by personal crisis relating to finances, relationship, or health. The most cited reason for a person seeking specialist homelessness services assistance is financial difficulties at 39%, followed closely by family and domestic violence at 37%. Equally prevalent is the housing crisis at 37%, a synonym for eviction, basically, while 26% cite inadequate or inappropriate home condition, according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. Both of these reasons link homelessness strongly with a housing system problems consistent with the uh, statistical relationship between housing affordable, housing affordability and homelessness in the Australian research. Anecdotally, uh, th- this this document, I should say, um, is paints a very very grim picture. I did start going yeah. through it, and there's a lot. And look, there's a lot even in what I've just sort of <laughs> sort of said. There's this is a hugely complicated issue. Yeah, this is a hugely complicated issue. But what I can say, uh, anecdotally, I was uh, camping at a reasonably busy campsite, uh, you know, uh, in, in, a, in a touristy metropolitan area in southeast Queensland recently, and there were people there that uh, I was sort of talking to, uh, and they told me that they were effectively homeless they were working homeless they had jobs they had full-time jobs they had nice cars so you know reasonably nice not not like brand new or anything um but you know within the last sort of 15 years old um and they said that they literally do not have they can't afford they can't find a house to to rent and the rentals that are available are too expensive uh and so they are living in a tent an entire family with their children hmm. at, at the caravan park, at the at the tourist park, wow. uh, until something else comes along. And I, it honestly, it broke my heart. The, the, the kids didn't know any different. I don't think they realised that there was anything wrong. I think they just thought it was a bit fun. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, they want to keep it that way. Um, but it, it really upset me because these were lovely people that are, that are working hard, uh, you know, classic Aussie battler type type situation. Um, they've done everything right, and they're they're homeless. Like, yeah. I just it blows my mind. Yeah, look, I'm, I I had look, I had that down in my my notes. Um, 
I had financial difficulties underlined uh, as as one of the things to to discuss. Um, yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll start there and work backwards. But to me, financial difficulties points to the continually failing role of government of, of both persuasions. You know, so I'm not I don't really care about either one. But the continually failing role of both governments to maintain a healthy economy and a self-sufficient populace. To my way of thinking, and look, I know maybe I'm naive. Maybe there's something I don't understand, and I can accept there's a lot of things I don't understand. But to my way of thinking, if you're out there ticking the the, the boxes, doing uh, doing your work holding a job, creating a family, and you can't afford even basic accommodation, then I'm more of the more inclined to think, well, what's wrong with the system that you can't, rather than to say, well, what's wrong with you that you, you can't? And look, we're talking generalizations. Generalizations tell us nothing about an individual, and there's going to be extremes on each end. However, there is a large group of people in the middle of the bell curve who, as you said, are doing the right thing, yet they can't get those basic necessities fulfilled. And again, it's my bias and my filter. However, I tend to look at you know, our, our leaders who are meant to be providing a healthy economy um, and that would then create a self-sufficient populace. And I'm looking at that as, as a fail on their behalf because I just don't think it's right. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. You know, it, it's a shocking statistic that there's 120,000 Australians yep. that were homeless on the night of the 2021 census. And I can tell you now that number has grown probably scary how big that number is today. Um uh, and it, it, going back to the the post war uh, public housing that that you know the, the amount of units two hundred and fifty in twenty five years they built two hundred and fifty thousand houses and these were for you know the most vulnerable people mm. of of our community really that that's that's generally who lives in public housing right. Um, mm. As we said, the people that have suffered through homelessness other than financial difficulties were family and domestic violence, 37% of people, family and domestic violence. Um, these are vulnerable people. I, I think I think we know this. I think the average Australian does in the back of their mind actually notice. They read things, they hear things like this. But it's kind of like this is a complicated issue. It's too hard. I can't really fix the problem. So... You know, I'm just going to get on. We're all doing it tough, and that's true. And I'm not trying to, you know, by by talking about this, we're not trying to trivialize other people's battles, just the nope. cost of living and things yep. like that. Yep. But I think it's worth remembering there is, you know, it, it's it's tough for all of us, but there are other people that are basically at the end of the rope, you know, at the end of the tether that we need to make sure that they're they're looked after as well and it can benefit all of us i think that's the other thing to remember it's not a 
them against us type situation. It's all of us together. We're all in this boat. And if it's sinking, it's all of our problem. Um, and we need to focus on that. And the, the only thing I can, you know, both major parties are really guilty at, at not addressing this problem. This yep. isn't just an LNP problem or a labor problem. It's both of them together. However, I am optimistic that the Albanese government may be the government that actually finally addresses this. Um, I think the writing's on the wall. I, I'm not saying that the Albanese government is is something special. Uh, I, I just think it's it's basically the writing's on the wall and we need to do something now or it's all going to come crashing down. The House of Cards is, is mm. toppling. Yeah, I, I think... Say. I think the Albanese government is more likely to do something about it than, say, previous governments that we've had in the last few years, which are more than happy to kind of just ignore problems and hope they go away. Um, so I'm hopeful that things like this, um, this deep, deep investigation, like proper research into this, um, has been done. We know what the problem is. We know how big the problem is right now. We need the government to actually act on this. And I know I can hear you groaning already. <laughs> about- just, just thinking, I've got, I've got the opinion that, look, I really hope that you are correct and that my opinion that they will be the usual set of foul and rancid liars just stringing the public along for political gain is, I'm hoping that's going to be incorrect. I do get your point, but it's going to depend on, I don't care about the the words, um, and... You know, the, the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute who produced this report that we're talking about, they're, they're a not-for-profit um, organisation. They're funded by uh, Australian governments, state and territory governments, as well as some contributors from partner universities. So they are, yeah, on the- paper, they're not, they're not an unbiased organisation. Now, I'm not... I, I'm not meaning to impugn them because I don't know the people. I don't know the full details of this. I'm just talking about what I've read. However, my experience is also that if you follow the money, the money seldom goes against the hand that's that's giving it. Now, I'm, uh, despite what some people might think, I'm perpetually optimistic and perpetually full of hope, and I feel like what you said particularly that little thing of it's got to the point where it's potentially going too far, that's a positive. I'll hold my celebrations until I actually see something positive because I don't tend to believe them just on on principle. But you're right, there are signs that this could uh, could be the time that we turn around. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add to this the the main researchers that uh released this paper were from the university of new south wales sydney and the royal melbourne institute of technology so big big institutions with lots of credibility so you know when we talk about this this is very high quality 
uh, report and, and, you know, this is the sort of documentation you can't, you can't really ignore. Um, the what what <coughs> what has some slight disagreement there with always trust well, how, yeah. how, how, however um, i i'll take my take my cynical hat off and i understand what you're saying there it's, what it's, I, it's de- de- people who've got decent credentials that you yes. can listen to it and think okay yeah. i can accept that there's a whole lot of meat in there that's worthwhile unless i've seen otherwise yeah so when i say that i mean like we're talking about subject matter experts we're talking about legitimate researchers from you know with genuine credentials from prestigious institutions Mm. um that so it is worth listening to what they're saying is is more pointing out their solutions i don't think necessarily like they've gone into a They've they've basically drafted almost almost a bill, if I'm honest. Um, yes. And yep. Which which I think is really interesting, but we'll have to pit, put a pin in that for another day. But the I don't necessarily agree with some of their their approaches and everything. And, and what I was going to say before about you, you groaning is they want to create two new you know uh, oh, government God. committees and, and and all this sort of stuff. But and and the the reason I think we're probably getting to the end of the tether is because there is the economy is in shambles right now. Yep. We are, there is a, a, a huge economic recession it, like on the horizon. We can all see it. it we're, this train is going, going straight down the tracks and the bridge is out and we all I, know. I, it. You know, DK, I don't think everyone can see it. And I don't think that's the story that's getting peddled, and that bothers me. You, you can see it. I can see it. There's a, a number of people can see it. And, and look, things can change, and we can be completely wrong, but I think that's a very low percentage. Uh, I think there is definitely a recession. Hopefully it's not horrendous, but there's definitely a recession on the horizon. But I don't think you're correct in saying that all of us can see it. Okay. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, I do... I think this is actually a, an opportunity. This is There's a silver lining here where the federal government could look at this and go, you know what? We've got a problem. We have this huge housing crisis problem anyway. Yep. We need to build new houses. They've been sort of dragging their feet on this at the moment anyway. this There is legislation currently uh, in parliament. They're talking about public housing and things like that already. But this could become uh, very much like those post-war strategies that were not only designed to help people, but they were also designed to get the economy off Mm. of war footing and actually give people skills, get the economy supercharged again and that's where we went into you know the years of of the 60s 70s and 80s was sort of the peak of it really um and this could, there's a huge opportunity here to do this similar sort of thing get the economy going which they're kind of already doing but it is all private sector building and things like that going on so that the, but there is an opportunity here to build just let's just start building new towns um, we've got exactly, and you 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 hit again. You hit on one of the points in my notes is 
what we seem to be seem to be lacking, and again, this is both sides completely nonpartisan. We're lacking any leadership uh, where people can present a vision for the the nation to get behind. I yeah. just yeah. just feel like the the um, yeah the nature of politics is yeah large pr- projects are derided when the other team proposes them. Uh, and I think it's just poor leadership on both sides, and I think there's, I think there's a real lack of people saying, "Listen, he wasn't the t- he or she wasn't the team I voted for. I don't like them, but that's a good idea. I can see how that's good for me, my kids, my grandkids. You know what? I'm not going to slam it. I'm going to get behind it. But I, in my lifetime, have seen very little of that." Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, un- no, un- un- unfortunately. Yeah. but look, this may be di- this 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 may be different. And if Albo happens to be the one to make this um, work, great. I'll take a win wherever we can get it. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've spoken about it many times before. There's lots of um, lots of really cool areas of Australia with regional cities that that have growth opportunities and we're all trying to cram into to Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. Let's yep. let's let's get some the creative juices flowing. Let's start building some of these areas up. Let's let's move some of these some of these major government departments don't need to be in Sydney, Melbourne. I know I know a lot of obviously the federal stuff's in in Canberra, but sure. there's a lot of like Victorian government buildings that don't need to be in Melbourne. Let's move some of them out. Same with Sydney. Like let's do this. Let's go from top to bottom, from from federal government down to local. Yep. Let's let's we've got a problem. We can fix it. Let's get a bit of that post-war optimism, a yep. bit of the you know, let's move away. We've had such so many decades now of just like terrible you know, we obviously post Cold War, post Cold War in the in the early nineties, we had uh, a little a little fleeting glimpse of of this peaceful world uh, that all came crashing mm. down with the uh, September eleven attacks. That pun is completely intended. Uh, and yep. since then, I think there's been you know this dark cloud over it. But we need to, I think, as a as a country, we need to. We've got a big problem. We can fix it. We can get creative, and we can create. A really, we can make Australia a lot better than it is for everyone, and we can make everyone, um, you know, instead of instead of trying to. There's so many arguments around about you know everyone's just blaming other people and bashing yep. other people and stuff like that. I think we need a bit of a bit of that post-war optimism and and uh, actually get stuck in like we used to and fix the problems and and everyone's happy along the way, but. Sp- yeah, yeah, there's some some regional there's some regional centres that um, can support a lot of activities, um, and a whole lot of little tiny towns around them that can you know benefit from that spreading out from the city without necessarily having to have uh, you know urban growth. You can just jump the jump the tracks and create different centres. Exactly. And speaking of wonderful little urban areas uh, <laughs> regional towns outside of the urban areas i think it might be time for this week's uh two text town talk adeep 
What's going on? I've been well, this uh, week's Two Ticks Tower Talk takes us to Sheffield, Tasmania. Coordinates 41 degrees, 23 minutes south, 146 degrees, 20 minutes east. That translates into when you're looking at the triangle of, of Tassie, near the top in the middle, just below where the dip is in that familiar triangle, that's where you'll find Sheffield. Uh, this was an area that grew, like it was in an area that grew slowly uh, and there was the commencement of the, the Mercy and Forth Rivers that came together for the Mercy Forth Power Development Scheme in 1963. That had a lot of uh, growth for the town. But when the power scheme was completed, uh, there were seven dams and seven power stations. In 1973, the town's population declined. And this actually dovetails nicely into what we're talking then about thinking differently and inspiration. The reason I picked this one was that the town was uh, declining. Uh, the, the the big injection of funds for that Mersey Forth Power Development Scheme were, yeah, you know, they were there no longer. So a number of uh, residents, like a small group of residents, had a look around. <clears throat> excuse me, had a look around uh, what other towns around the world were doing. Worked out that what they were going to try and do was make Sheffield the town of murals. So, oh, cool. Yeah, so they started. They started doing it. They started getting murals putting up around the, the 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 place. They started to have competitions. They started to uh, to advertise themselves at it. They essentially pulled themselves up. Well, God, the old saying: pulled themselves up by the the bootstraps and took a town that didn't have any murals and made it into a town of murals. They have artists there who. Uh, in in residence and working on murals, they have people around to the point that today the town's economy is actually driven by tourism, and it has become a service centre for the surrounding farmland. So unlike many towns that sort of lose the initial um, cash cow or the resources dry up or the industry changes, uh, they decided to save the town showed some thinking and you know, everyone got behind it and now that's actually saved the town and it's driving the local economy. So that look I I thought that was very heartening. And it just it, when you were talking about uh moving moving out some of the government functions and just the different sort of uh showing a bit of vision, I thought, oh <laughs> You've almost perfect. read my script. Yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. I'm actually while you've talk, <laughs> while you've been talking, I've been just on Google Maps on Street View, just yep. having a look uh, you know, uh virtually driving around the, the town oh. of Sheffield, having a look at some of the murals. And you're right, damn near at least on the main street, almost every yep. every stop that you have, if you turn around, there's a mural, sometimes multiple in the background. They're everywhere, and good ones too. Not just, oh, not just fantastic. sort of, yeah. you know, someone working out there with a, paint, a paintbrush. There was one in because oh, I was, I'm, I did the same thing. Had a bit of a, a, a look around at what they've got, and there was 
one that sort of caught my uh, eye. It's, it's it's a storefront, but just sort of done with like a little girl looking through the the window, and it's just such an ordinary scene that if you drove by it, you would just sort of think, oh, that's what it is. But it's just such a well done mural that just captures just captures that sort of action, and your eye'd be thinking, that's what I'm seeing. But then your brain would be thinking, hang on, she's not moving. You're you're, you're looking at a picture. Uh, there was a lot of, in fact, so much so that I think uh, when I go down to Tassie next, it's been a while since I've been down there, I think I'm going to pop down there, have a bit of a, a look at it. I liked what I saw online. Uh, they also had a couple of, there was a couple other things that they had as well. Uh, still most of the southwestern west coast hydro Tasmania power stations uh, controlled from the hydro station centre in in Sheffield, you know, going back to their Mersey Fourth Power Development Scheme history, they have the Tasmanian Medieval Festival. Oh. Um, yeah, which you can look up, and that's been a, that's been a growth. And they also have the Devil's Gate Dam, which has one of the thinnest dam walls in the world. Uh, is that is that a good thing? I don't know. Well, well, um, apparently, <laughs> apparently it is. What have we got? Is is one of the thinnest concrete arch dams in the world. Um completed in 69 and 84 meters high. The narrowness of the gorge and the computer-aided design of its double curvature shape enabled engineers to minimize the volume of concrete and hence the cost of the dam. Apparently floodwaters go freely over the the, the top and just you know, spill over yeah yeah so well i mean i suppose it's been it's been up there for a while and uh you know i tend to i tend to have a fair bit of faith in engineering that's you know the the next step on from proven proven sites yeah uh, they yeah. they generally over engineer things not not under engineer yeah. things so yeah, exactly. So look, it's it does have that it does have those other attractions as as well. But the reason why of note why this week Sheffield Tasmania because of how well they did moving into a new area, a new era and making themselves the town of murals and saving the town, saving the economy and showing some um yeah, a, a growth a growth mindset and a love of their location. I, I love that. What a what a yeah. what a yep. great uh, a great little Australian success story. Bit of bit of ingenuity, a bit yep. of creativity. It's exactly what we were talking about before that we need now of all times. And little Sheffield, Tasmania, is a perfect example of that. By any chance, if any of our listeners are actually from Sheffield, Australia. Please reach out to us on the r slash Australian subreddit. Oh. Um, I'd love to know. And if there are any murals um, that you you particularly like or are of particular note that we should check out, or if you've actually been there yourself, I'm sure some of our listeners have actually oh. been to Sheffield or driven through there because I think it's, it's it's quite close to the, the city of Devonport, I think, um, which is sort of like a major port in that in that part of Tasmania, I've, I've been to Devonport myself, but I didn't. I drove the coast road, so I didn't. I didn't go through Sheffield, unfortunately. Which is it is a shame now. Actually, I quite would have liked to have driven through there, but 
Um, well, that's what, that's what we're hoping to to do by having the you know, the two ticks tiny town talk. Um, in, in here, there's so many interesting places around. Exactly. And speaking of interesting places to go through very quickly, uh, <laughs> Ken, <laughs> Ken and you, I, I, honestly, I almost lost that. I, I didn't know where that was going when I started speaking. Um, <laughs> Ken, the new high-speed rail authority, deliver high-speed rail link from Sydney to Melbourne after four decades of failures. Australia's new high-speed rail authority has come into being on the 6th of June, creating created by the Albanese government. The authority and its newly named board have a have been set a challenging task bring high speed rail to reality simple but incredibly incredibly difficult apparently nearly four decades after it was first proposed australia must surely hold the world record for high speed rail studies with no construction made I estimate the cost of these studies to date to be about $150 million, both public and privately funded money. This is adjusted for inflation. Uh, yet not a single kilometre of land corridor for high-speed rail has been reserved, let alone a single piece of track. The challenge for the Albanese government is to go further than yet with more studies and actually start construction. So, a bit of history. Uh, in 1984, the CSIRO proposed the, and I quote, this is their name, not mine, very fast train connecting Sydney, Canberra, and Melbourne. Uh, consortium undertook many studies and a Senate committee inquiry was held. However, the proposal failed to win the government support and did not proceed. Next was the pragmatic speed rail proposal. This was a link Sydney to Canberra using existing tracks from Sydney to MacArthur and new tracks to Canberra. The Prime Minister John Howard enthusiastically endorsed the project before the 1998 election, saying... The very fast train will rival airline flight as the preferred means of travel for countless millions of Australians for decades to come. The Howard government gave approval for the Speed Rail Consortium to prove up their proposal. The cost was about $4.5 billion. About a billion dollars would have been required from the government, but this was denied. It was a lot, another lost opportunity for Australia. Instead, the Howard government funded yet another study which effectively found high-speed rail to be too expensive. So they, <laughs> so they also did a two-stage, uh, sorry. There was also a two-stage study by the Gillard government in which Anthony Albanese was the minister overseeing the planning process until Labor lost the election in 2013. It cost... Uh, high-speed rail network for the East Coast, which was going to cost $114 billion in 2012. Something tells me that probably wasn't going to get funded. Huh. More parliamentary inquiries have followed since, and the National Faster Rail Agency formed in 2019 has expanded further funds. The agency now falls under the High-Speed Rail Authority, which, to be fair, that High-Speed Rail Authority is a way better name than the National Faster Rail Agency. Yeah. 
In 2018, the New South Wales government began its own investigations into faster rail, launched by then-Premier Gladys Berejiklian. The resulting report by UK rail expert Andrew McNaughton has not been released. It was reported last year to have recommended new tracks between Newcastle, Sydney and Wollongong, along with a Sydney-Canberra upgrade and better services to the state's central west. New South Wales now lags far behind Queensland, Victoria and Western Australia. All of these states have trains moving at at least 160 kilometres per hour over upgraded tracks. And this includes the Queensland's electric tilt train, which has been travelling between Brisbane and Rockhampton since 1998. And I have been on it. It doesn't tilt anymore, I don't think. Uh, but it does go, like, over 150 kilometres an hour. And, it like, you wouldn't... When you're on there and it's going, you don't really notice it's going so quickly. Mm. Um, it's very cool. It's a very, very nice train to ride on. The Minister for Infrastructure and Transport, Catherine King, said last week the first priority of the High Speed Rail Authority is planning and corridor works from the Sydney to Newcastle section of the network. The government is providing $500 million for this. In addition, this project will require a much improved in-house rail engineering capability. The project will also need to be delivered without the problems that the Inland Rail Freight Line project has encountered. The Albanese government ordered an independent review of the Inland Rail, which found serious shortcomings. It will now only proceed this decade on a rail link between Melbourne and Parks. Question remains over the section from Parks to Brisbane. Honestly, it seems like every government from the 1980s has promised a high-speed rail connection from Melbourne all the way to Brisbane, but it's not happened. Why? I think distance is a really big issue. We're talking as the crow flies, distance of approximately 1,450 kilometers, or for our American listeners, that's 900 miles through four states and territories and across countless amounts of private and public acres of land. So why do we even need high-speed rail? Why has this been a thing since the 1980s? There are 459 flights per week between Sydney and Melbourne. That's the second busiest flight path in the world. And a high-speed rail rail route between these two would obviously help reduce these numbers. And there's huge demand for travel between these two cities. So the question I have is, do you think the high-speed rail authority can actually get some track laid? And if they did, would you prefer to use that than, say, drive or fly, if you were going from Melbourne to Sydney? Oh, God, we've now got a, now got a second thing where I have to be bloody barracking for, for elbow. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, I guess it's, uh, you know, it's not him individually drawing lines on the ground, but it's, it's you know, he's where the buck supposedly stops. Again, well, and, he, and this, oh, this was yeah. his... This was his baby when he was, you know, a minister in the, in the Gillard government. So he's got a vested interest in this one. Uh, the, good, very good, very good point. Look, I, I can accept the arguments that uh, a high-speed rail is not economically feasible, but I always wonder when measured against what uh, you you pose the question do i think they can get some tracks laid 
I reckoned they can probably get uh, some track lades, tracks laid. I think that's I think that's highly I think that's highly possible. Um, it wouldn't surprise me even if they have to throw more money than what it's worth at it, so that they can get some runs on the board and say we finally are the first government in four decades to actually i think we said we were four decades whatever it was uh to to do something about it so i can see a few k's of track being laid would i prefer to travel uh by plane rather than uh train between melbourne and sydney now that's a trip that i do by car a reasonable bit and i've got family up in uh sydney um and it's also something that I do fly and I'll have a really big whinge sometime about flight credits and the insane <laughs> loops you have to jump through to uh to, to get them and the <laughs> actually I won't get I won't get onto that because I'm <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't happy with I wasn't happy with with Virgin during the the week, but anyway, that's another that's another story. So, my my current experience with airlines, which have just you know Virgin and Qantas, uh, which I mainly use for the two of them, you know they're just gone just gone to crap. There's just so many things that are so so difficult with them that I would happily happily entertain uh, taking a train up to to Sydney. Being able to get up, walk around, um, comfortable seats. Yeah, you know, provided they didn't go to this ridiculous airline thing where they're cutting a centimeter each year, uh, it would, <laughs> it would, yeah, it would appeal to me. So, look, that's that's my answer to your questions on those. We'll discuss a little bit more of it. But what about you? Would you be using a, a fast train between uh, capitals? I don't know. Obviously, uh, I'm I'm north of Brisbane, so I've caught the tilt train uh, from from up this way because the tilt train goes from Brisbane all, all the way to to Rockhampton, which is a pretty significant distance. Um, I think that's like yeah, it's it's like 700 k's or something like that. That's it's a long way that 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 mm. tilt train goes. Um, I've caught that. Uh, uh, for a number of hours down to Brisbane before. And it, it's actually very similar to, to the driving uh, timeline because the train does go much faster than you're legally allowed to drive. Yep. Uh, but it does stop along the way. So that kind of does slow it down. It, it is, it, it's, you know, roughly the same amount of time as you take to drive. But of course, you're not burning uh, all of that diesel in my case and uh you don't have to pay for parking at the other end so yeah. there is definitely an upside to it it's, it's significantly cheaper um and of course in the case of brisbane it drops you off at roma street station which is in the middle of the city so it is very very convenient for that that fact and it's very comfortable too and you know they give you a, a usb plug and you can charge it and you can buy food and stuff like that and i've the food uh, on board the train is actually yep. quite good. Um, I'd say it's better than like than you know the equivalent food you'd get on say an airline or something like that. Yep. Um, would I get it from like Brisbane to Sydney? Oh, I don't know. It would really depend because that is a, that is a significant distance. Mm. Um, you know, that's normally I think it's 
almost a two-hour flight. Um, yeah, yep. I don't know. Honestly, I actually don't know. I, I think I would do it if the price was right because obviously the time factor, it's it's going to take a lot longer uh, to, to do that flight. But if I could... If I could get the train from up here down to Brisbane, then yep. just change trains, and then it's one train to Sydney, I don't have to, you know, deal with the going through security and airports and being there early oh and God. the price gouging at the terminal, and you know, there's always something the flight might be delayed or there's something all inevitably goes wrong. Um, if it wasn't that much longer then, yeah, I probably would actually use it. If I lived in Sydney, um, where I used to live, I've driven from Sydney to Canberra and I've driven from Canberra to Melbourne, not in the same trip. Um, <laughs> so, so I've done the full the full drive, but at different times. Um, it's it's not a bad drive, but, you know, if oh, I could... It's a pretty good drive, yeah. Yeah, I, I think if you could... It, it can just be very busy. That's the other thing, of course. You've got to factor in, like, traffic and, and all that sort of stuff, which, yep. you know, coming coming into traffic into Sydney at the end of a long drive it can be a bit a bit um, very demoralizing. Oh, I've, done, I've done that a number of times. You're on, you're on a freeway of where you've been. You had a speed limit of 110, and then you start getting out to the, the outskirts and you hit, start to hit – Campbelltown and you know you're in a hundred zone but you're actually just doing you know 90 down to 80 down to to 70 and if you if you strike any of that any of that peak hour and it seems to peak hour seems to go both ways on those those outskirts yeah Yeah. you're right it's a bit demoralizing (laughs) yeah because it's you know it's it's a nine uh, nine ish hour drive depending on traffic and um you know, you've been driving basically all day and you come into Sydney or, or the vice versa. You come start coming into Melbourne. I feel like Melbourne deals with traffic a little bit better than Sydney. Um, but, you know, you come in and you're tired and you're a little bit grumpy and you just want to get to where you're going. Yeah, that sucks. I'll avoid that. I'd, I'd get the train. What I don't... But to be honest, I don't know if the Albanese government can genuinely do it because it's so expensive. That's the problem. Yes. So, it, it you know, we haven't gone really into the technicals because it, it would make for very boring listening. But basically, you can't use regular rail tracks for a high-speed train. It no, has to no. be specifically designed high-speed rail infrastructure. So you, you can't use the existing infrastructure. It has to be all new, and that, of course, comes with a huge price tag. And I don't know if there's the political capital really to do this. I think it would be reasonably successful if you did Melbourne, you know, Melbourne, Canberra, Sydney. Um, I think I think it would be successful. I think it would make money. Um, yep. you've, you've <laughs> there's some pretty big mountains in the way, so you're going to have to go around. But um, yeah, or, or go like Melbourne, Canberra, Wollongong, Sydney, something like that. I think, yeah, it would be very, very successful. And even like a Sydney to Wollongong high-speed train would open up that area a lot yes. as well. And yep. the same north going like Sydney to Newcastle high-speed train. Look, there'd be that's a lot of- a, 
great example. You, you just nailed some some way that you could test it small. Yeah, uh, yeah. So start, start somewhere like yep. that. Yeah, yep. great, start great somewhere point. like that and just see how successful it is. See if the people – I feel like in Australia we're a, bit, we're a bit like Americans where we're very fiercely independent and we there's a big car culture here. We don't mm. use public transport. Probably – I would say the best public transport in Australia is probably in Sydney and in Melbourne um, with the trams in Melbourne and the, and the trains in Sydney. And there mm. is a pretty significant bus network in both cities, but – so there's sort of already that culture of commuting via rail, and I think it would probably be the most successful in those areas. But this is this is an unknown. We don't we don't use a lot of trains outside those urban CBDs, other than to transport vast amounts of cargo and things like that around. Um, oh, huge. I'd be keen because it's so so efficient, and you can just you you start thinking of people as cargo and. Exactly. You do get those. You do get those same efficiencies, and when you've got those rails down there, I mean, they're all as as I understand it. And I'm not a Roro, but but as I understand it, the um, locos are going to all run on on diesel at this point. But uh, you know, you you look at a time in the the future, and you know, maybe they've got th- three engines that are all you know full of of batteries pulling the this thing. It has. Essentially, the expandability of what fiber optics should have had versus uh, versus copper, and you know there might be an argument that uh, it's going to be worth it in the future. I mean, look for me of all of all the ways that government can spend or waste money, this seems to at least stand the chance of creating some sort of usable infrastructure for the future. Plus, can can you imagine the profit tax generated by sports bets and the other gambling mobs running a book on ruse strikes? That'd be worth a fortune. <laughs> oh, I mean, well, that's – well, you'd have to fence the whole thing, obviously, uh, for, that, for that exact reason. Um, but I, I think you're right, and you've sort of touched on something that I, I hadn't mentioned was – the future economic benefit of linking Melbourne and Sydney by a very fast train where we can get people, you know, because at the moment the flight is, I think it's just under an hour and a half between Melbourne and Sydney. So it's yep. not a particularly long flight. Um, but you've got to factor in, of course, the time that takes you at either end. And, of course, Melbourne doesn't have a rail link from Tullamarine Airport into the oh, city, which God. just blows my freaking mind dan andrews get onto that what the hell and this is another thing is this has been something that keeps coming up every election cycle you know oh yep we're gonna do it we're gonna do it we're gonna do it and nothing ever happens and it's like oh it's just you know i'm I'm almost getting sick of reading about high-speed rail because it's like just Either do it or give up. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. um, do a shit or get off the toilet. You know, like, come yeah, exactly on. Exactly right. What's like? I, I don't know. I just, I know it's complicated. I know it's hard. I know there's there's a lot of moving parts in this, and it's not. You know, we we obviously we live in a country where. The government can come in and say, hey, listen, you need to sell us some land because we're going to build a rail through your farm or something like that. But at the same time, we're not we're not like places like China that just take the land and don't don't 
recompensate people or don't give them a choice and things like that. So there's a lot, a lot of people that are involved in this. And I think we need to, this either needs to happen or we need to stop talking about it. Yeah, look, I, I tend to agree with you. So, look, let's let's hope this goes down in history as the year that they actually laid some track. That's it. There's another opportunity. Anthony Albanese, we know you listen to the podcast. I, you know, this is another win on the board, right? Well, we um, keep giving him suggestions and, you know, he's, he's taken up a, a, a couple of them. You know, past listeners of the podcast will know that Albo has um, – Followed a couple of our suggestions. We're throwing that out to you again, mate. This this year this year is probably a bit bit hard, but uh, certainly before you go up to the next election, wouldn't mind seeing a few k's of track and take on DK's suggestion of maybe trialing it between Wollongong and Sydney. And mate, you could use this as a, you know election bait. That would be perfect. We've got a plan. We're going to do it. We've got the funding. You know, it's an oh, easy yes. win. It's an easy win. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking about small towns in Australia and their really interesting history and rails antiquated, I guess, by today's standards. So tell us what's happened this week in Australian history. This week in history, uh, let's start off with June 15th. We've got... uh, Frank Gardner, uh, Ben Hall, and Johnny Gilbert bailed up the Lachlan Gold Escort in Yugawa Rocks near Forbes, New South Wales, where I was born. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, you're from yeah, Forbes, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Bloody oath, that's right. This holdup is still considered to be the largest ever gold, robber, gold robbery in Australia's history. How much did they get? I don't know. I oh, don't tell you. Don't know. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know. I was putting these together, and I uh, I went on. I got a few more details on the Yalorn power station, but I don't know the answer to uh, to that. Sorry, going to have to leave you in suspension or <laughs> leave our listeners to look it up themselves. Um. 1924, the Yalorn Power Station began operation. Uh, and we've got the Yalorn Power Station was a complex of six brown cold fired thermal power stations that they built, uh, built in stages from the 20s to the 60s. Uh, all except one have been decommissioned. Uh, there's just a, a single one, Yalorn West Plant, that remains. Uh, your lawn is the second largest power station in Victoria, and it gives us 22% of our electricity and 8% of the national electricity market. It's also got a open-cut brown coal mine next to it, which is the largest open-cut coal mine in Australia, and there's enough uh, of the good stuff in there to meet the needs of the power station till 2028. There you go. I was just yeah. sort of s- s- sniggering to myself, thinking, "Well, that's very convenient." Uh, I imagine that wasn't a coincidence, but if it was, that would be incredible. Um, we built a power station, and it turns out right next door is the largest coal mine in Australia. Um, yeah. well, I think that's why it was. I'm, yeah, yeah no, I'd yeah. imagine it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. This good spot to, to get, and, and it, it makes it makes sense, and hopefully they'll have a. Uh, 
a similar amount of sense in the future and build some uh, reactors next to our uranium supplies. So uh, I've, I've looked it up. The Frank Gardner oh, game. Oh, did you? Yeah. 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 They ambushed the Forbes Orange Cobb Co. coach. They stole, <laughs> this is unbelievable, 82.5 kilograms of gold. You're kidding me. And $7,400 in cash. This is 1862. That would have been worth- 82 kilograms of 82 gold. and a half kilograms. They only ever recovered $28,000 worth of the gold. Well, that is 28,000 in those in money in those days in those days. So how much 82 kilogram 82 oh. and a half kilos of gold was worth in 1862? Oh, cuz what are you there's 30 32 34 troy ounces in a kilogram. I th- I think that's cor- correct. You've got an ounce of gold at the moment is hovering around about 2000 bucks. It says, yeah, it's, it says it was 2,719 ounces. Wow. Wow, that's a lot of gold. So in today's money, at, at a rate of $2,000 an ounce, it's $5.5 million worth of gold. Wow. That's a lot of gold. I, uh, uh, let's let's take a slight divergence of a, a slight uh, factoid now. If you were to put all the gold that's ever been mined into in the history of humanity into a cube, how big do you think the side of that cube would be? I think it's really small i think it i I remember hearing a factoid and again i don't know if this is true that it would fit inside of an olympic size swimming pool with plenty of room to spare but yeah 21 to 22 meters wow and that's i mean that's obviously shirt load of gold i mean yeah it's been mined and you know once you start breaking that down into ounces you can you can see it but it's really not that big it's really not considering no. how many gold mines and how much you know industries and yeah. everything around it. It's, this is a pretty small amount, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, sorry, that was just a slight divergence. That's that fact has always always amazed always amazed me, um, and that gold has all come from exploding stars. Uh, the final one on June fifteenth, nineteen ninety two, uh, painter Brett Whiteley died from a heroin overdose. June 16th, 1906, the town of Roma, Queensland, becomes the first town in Australia to be lit and powered by natural gas. Oh, uh, wow. how, yeah, however, the reserve only lasted 10 days. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, now oh, presumably wow. they yeah. fixed it, fix it up, but whoa, what a 10 days. What, what uh, year did you say that was? That was in 1906. 1906. Wow, Roma, Queensland um, is still there's still lots of natural natural gas fields and stuff like that out there. Uh, it's a bit of a regional. Uh, I don't want to say like regional capital, but it is the largest town for quite a long. Like you know, it services a huge area, like thousands of kilometers kind of area. So. Um, if it was going to be anywhere out there, yeah, it was going to be Roma. Um, but that's cool. 1906. Wow. Yeah. And I always, I always find it interesting how you've just got that little, um, 
uh, what, what do they call it? Not shroud or membrane, you know. It, you know when you've got the gas-powered lanterns mm. and it, it just sort of glows but doesn't burn? I've always sort yes, of found that yes, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. The um, oh, I don't know what the word of it is. The, it is the, the mantle, I think. Maybe yeah, that's what it is. Mantle, something like right. that. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it might it's be the very mantle. delicate. Don't touch it. It'll, it'll break. No, but it's interesting how well it works. Hmm. Uh, 1936. Charlie Perkins, the Australian Aboriginal, the Australian Aboriginal activist, is born. Um, 1950. Butter rationing ends. Following the end of the the war, catching catching up on there, so that was a quite a few years. Uh, June seventeenth, eighteen sixty seven. Uh, Henry Lawson was born, well known, uh, yeah, well truly famous Australian. I think most people know Henry Lawson. Eighteen ninety one, the Labor Party first entered the New South Wales Legislative Assembly with thirty five members elected. 1893, prospector Paddy Hennon files a reward claim announcing this. Oh, I'll quiz you on this one. And files a reward claim announcing the discovery of gold at where? Which state is it in? In 1893. Yeah, yeah in, I was going to say, I'll give you a hint. That's in WA. Uh, it's uh, like Kalgoorlie? Yeah. Exactly, such or, a fake yeah, okay. region. So, yeah, I didn't know who'd um, who'd got that claim there, or how I didn't realise it was far back as ninety three. I've always that that sort of that whole idea. Sorry to go off on another tangent, but that whole idea about uh, staking a claim and then and then you have to go, you have to go to the office and like basically tell everyone that you've you've yes. just discovered gold. You know, you can't, you, you can't really keep it secret. And that, and and then of course we had the gold rushes, like you know people literally trying to get there as quickly as possible to try and stake a claim so that they can can get the rewards. And that whole idea, that that whole concept is so foreign to us now. It's it's incredibly interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, that, that caught my attention. June eighteenth in eighteen eighty one, Art Gallery of South Australia opened by Prince Albert Victor. Duke of Clarence, uh, Prince Albert drop those, you know, those glass things. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's the same Prince Albert, but uh, certainly yeah. the name's the same. June nineteenth, nineteen forty-six, uh, the Honourable John Dedman introduced legislation to establish the Australian National University, and in nineteen sixty-nine, on June nineteenth, equal pay for women was granted by the Arbitration Commission. 1969, equal 1969. pay was granted. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's not that long ago. It's, no, it's, 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 you know, within uh, living memory. Well, well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. June 20th, 1790, the second fleet arrives at Port Jackson. Uh, yeah, but no one, no one cares if you come second. No. It's, that's that's the problem. It's very, very much f- almost forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be there first. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Nineteen twenty-seven on June twentieth, uh, and this is our last one. Is oh no, it's not. Sorry, uh, stuff my notes there. Nineteen twenty-seven on June twentieth, the film premiere of the for the term of his natural life. Uh, that was based on a story written by 
Marcus Clark published in the Australian Journal between 1870 and 72 and published as a novel in 1874. Um, and it's a, it's a novelisation of uh, uh, life as a convict in early Australian history. I remember seeing, a, I think it was a show in the 80s or a TV series on, you know, for the term of his natural life, but I didn't realise that the film had come out, the first film had come out in 1927. 1927, that's so early for film too. Yeah, I reckon. I'm sorry about that. Uh, 1949, Lance Sharkey, uh, chairman of the Communist Party, is convicted for sedition. Um, 2002, Australia decided to ratify the International Criminal Court. Uh, I wonder if the current government regrets that. Ha! Yeah, I wonder. Uh, the ICC is uh, financed by contributors from the st- uh, state's parties. Australia's ninth out of the top ten with uh, funding of 4%, about, that's about $10 million a year. And the USA does not currently ratify the ICC. Um, no, which is which is lucky because all their war criminals would be um, having arrest warrants read, uh, issued for them. Yes, yeah. Uh, June twenty first, nineteen thirteen, the HMAS Australia is commissioned at Portsmouth as flagship of the Royal Australian Navy. Um, yeah, we've we've had two yeah. HMAS Australias. Um, oh, I, would, I had a little asterisk down there to get a bit of info from you because that can, <laughs> yeah. that confused me. Yeah, because so there's there's two. There was um, uh, obviously the first one. Uh, what when did you say it was? It was commissioned in, in 1913. It was yeah. sort of out of date when it was. Um, Commissioned, if I'm honest, uh, n- n- you know, naval technology moved very quickly just prior to the First World War, uh, and right. the second one was launched in 1927. So not much, you wow. know, it's not not that old, really. Um, the first one was decommissioned, but the second one uh, served all through World War Two. Uh, it was it was our flagship. Uh, oh. We would have called it a. Other navies would have called it a heavy cruiser, um, but it was the largest ship that we had until the aircraft carriers that we had in the nineteen uh, 1960s. The uh, HMS Australia II was decommissioned in 1954, uh, and we haven't had an HMS Australia since. And I think mm. because it's quite a... You know, quite an ostentatious name, HMAS mm. Australia. Um, I think we need something real special to call it that. And I think, I, I honestly, I just think the governments of today are a bit lacking in creativity and vision, perhaps. Seems to be the theme of, of tonight's podcast. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, that's very true. <laughs> All right, we've got two more to two more to go to finish this off. Um, on June twenty first, nineteen thirty three, Maud Bonney becomes the first woman to fly from Australia to England, and finally in nineteen fifty four, 
John Landy is the second man in the world to run a mile in under four minutes, setting a world record time of three minutes, 58 seconds at Turku in Finland. And I bet he enjoyed a beer after that. He bloody needs a forex, that's for sure. <laughs> so, this week's forex bottle top questions. Which Aussie summer icon was invented by refrigeration company Mally's? Is it the Esky? It is the Esky. Oh, well wow. done. That just came. Around. Wow. I'm, I'm pretty pleased with that. What's I'm it? pretty pleased with that. I thought I might ah. have to give you a hint. Oh, for some, re- for some reason that came to me when you said summer, summer icon. Wow. Invented by Mally. Yeah, Mally's was Mally's. the company. Yeah. So Esky is still a trademark, I believe. Um, I don't think it's owned by Mally's anymore. Um, But, yeah, you can't call, you know, uh, Icebox, I guess, is the generic name for it, or a a cooler, an ice cooler, uh, an an esky. Even though it is uh, in the common vernacular, we call kind of everything an esky, uh, but it it is a trademarked... Uh, name as far as I'm aware. So for our international listeners that don't know, an esky is uh, what you Americans cooler, call a cooler or uh, uh, I guess like an ice box, an ice chest. Uh, our Kiwi cousins like to call them a chili bin, ch- a chully bin. A um, yeah. uh, I'm not sure what the poms call it, but yeah, it's it's... They call it too warm. (laughs) (laughs) An insulated box, basically, (laughs) that keeps ice cold. Uh, And good ones are expensive and they're bloody worth it. Uh, I've got uh, a a couple that are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, A company actually in Frankston, um, pretty close to you, called Techie Ice. Uh, They make an incredible uh, esky, or I I shouldn't call it that, I guess. Uh, well, and I've I th- got one. I'm trying to think if they do. I I don't know if they do call it uh, esky, but they've got a. The, I'm guessing the house must must be a uh, either the uh, part of the owners or related to it somewhere because they've got a a truck with a, a billboard sized uh, side to it, but it's parked inside their property. And it's advertising it, so I'm thinking that's how they get around the the advertising re- restrictions. And they are uh, they'll sort of updated every couple of years with a a new model or a little little slogan. So yeah, I know the one you're talking about. On their website, I've just quickly googled it. On their website, they just call them ice boxes. Right. Um, there's a huge range. They're actually like. <laughs> It's very, it's very good. I know this is such a dad thing to get excited about. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you've you've got something a, a, a an insulated box that keeps ice cold for a long time. But I do a lot of camping, and while I do have a, 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 an electric fridge that we use while we're camping, uh, a big hundred liter Waco that we use, um, oh. the beer, unfortunately, because I have three children uh, and and the dog. Uh, the beer normally doesn't go in the fridge. It goes in the ice 
box, the esky. And yeah. so for me, having a really good esky means having cold beer, especially after a couple of days out in the bush. So uh, shout out to Techie Ice. They make a really good esky if you need one. <laughs> Again, they're not cheap, but they'll last you forever. You don't even need to buy one. So um, buy a good one and then you'll, you know, buy ones, cry ones, as they say. So Yeah, exactly. But do you, do you ever remember those old blue with the white lid foam ones? I've got one. I've got oh, one. They still kidding? sell them in Coles. Yeah, they still they still sell them. Oh God! I remember we going years ago when I was when I was younger, going to the 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 cricket um, in the, the days when you could sort of take in eskies full of of beers. I remember this poor bugger walking across like the main three roads either way, and he must have he must have just crammed in way too much, and this thing just essentially disintegrated mid crossing the the road and his beer and his ice went <laughs> everywhere uh, and they tried to go look I suppose it was a bit humorous for me as a, a kid but now in high, hindsight it was just the horror. <laughs> oh that's a bloody tragedy that is I that's oh, just pack up and go home. <laughs> but they were they were they were, they were crap those foam ones. Oh they are they're absolute crap. I only use it uh so I have one. I only use it if I'm going to like a mate's place. Yeah uh, taking a couple of beers and um, all my mates are good. They've all got, you know, the beer fridge. So it's literally only from here to there. It goes from the <laughs> fridge from here, you know, into the into the esky and then at their house gets taken out. So it's more uh, a box to carry things, I guess, than to yeah. keep anything cold. So, um, And on that, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks. The official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you do have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Good night. See you, DK.